Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everyone, to the School of Christi group, the School of Christ. It's been oh, a good six months since we last had a gathering, I think at least. And, uh, and so it's good to see you all again and to get back to our study of Romano Guardini's Meditations Before Mass. And, uh, but before we get started here this evening, um, just a little, uh, uh, a few instructions as we go along here tonight. Uh, for the, all of you on Zoom, uh, if you want to ask a question, there's, uh, you can raise your hand virtually down below and Emily will give me a little tone uh, that let me, lets me know that there's a question so I can finish my thought before I break away uh, to engage your question or, or comment. And, um, and uh, she'll also let us know when we've come to the end of our time at eight o'clock. Uh, also, if you haven't had a chance to read the text uh, that we're looking at tonight, it's very brief, but uh, Emily put the link to it uh, in the chat section here on Zoom. Uh, so if you wanted to bring it up on your computer, you could follow along or I'll be reading it and we'll be going paragraph by paragraph so you can just listen if you'd prefer to do that as well. Uh, Emily, anything else that I need to add? Uh, no, that's it. Uh, anyone who has questions on YouTube, I've already said they can just chat them and I will uh, ask them. Great. And just so you're all at ease, you aren't going to be streamed out onto YouTube so nobody's looking at you here tonight. So relax and enjoy. So, as I said, we've been reading Romano Guardini's work, Meditation Before Mass, and one of the things I love about this group, School of Christi, is that it's, from the beginning, uh, had a Eucharistic focus, and that was intentional. Uh, I think, certainly because as Catholics are the center of our life, uh, as Christians, is the Eucharist, it's the source of our life and salvation, it's the means through which we have the deepest intimacy and communion with the Lord. And, uh, and certainly in the history of the oratory, uh, the celebration of the Eucharist has been central, as well as adoration. Uh, the first oratory, uh, they helped in Rome to promote the 40 hours devotion, which was beginning at that, that time uh, within the life of the church. And uh, we have perpetual Eucharistic adoration here at the oratory as well. And so it seemed fitting that this would be the focus uh, of this group uh, throughout the course of the years. We began with Peter Cameron's work, uh, Jesus Present to Us, or Present to Me, and, uh, and then we moved on to Gordini's Meditations Before Mass, and we've been at it for oh, almost a good couple of years, and uh, he's an extraordinary writer uh, in many ways. He, and even though he wrote in the 1940s this particular book, it seems as though it's written for today's Roman Catholics, and it seems to fulfill what the Second Vatican Council called us to do, which is to go back to the sources, to reflect upon uh, what it is that we're celebrating, how we enter into it fully, uh, to explore the origins of the Eucharist and its meaning. And uh, Guardini has this way of writing that is accessible uh, to the reader, but also uh, very substantive. Uh, he paints with broad strokes, I think for us, uh, not getting over, overly theoretical, but he can go into detail 
I think when he feels that it's necessary for us to focus in on something that is especially important for our celebration of the Eucharist. Uh, the focus of the book, and especially the first part of the book, which we've just finished, has been on uh, the, the fundamental attitude that we have as we celebrate the Holy Eucharist, how it is that we are to participate in it. And the whole first part of the book was on the fundamental attitudes, interior attitudes that we are to have as we approach the Holy Eucharist, which was uh, curious to me and made sense though, that he would start uh, with what is going on within the human heart, not just uh, what's going on in our minds intellectually, uh, but how we are approaching the Holy Eucharist in terms of our intimacy with the Lord, preparing our minds and our hearts uh, to enter into this greatest of mysteries. And so uh, some of the themes that we looked at, if you remember, I'll just run through them very quickly, have been stillness, stillness and hearing the word of God, composure, uh, which was uh, we spent a couple of weeks on uh, because he approached it from a few different angles. Uh, how it is that we prepare ourselves even before we enter into the church in order that we might celebrate the Eucharist fully. Holy place, so the significance of the church building itself and sacred architecture, uh, the threshold of the altar, uh, entering up into the sanctuary itself, the altar, the Sabbath, and the meaning of the Sabbath. Mass is a sacred event, so an event unlike others, not a secular event. Uh, the Word, in both how it reveals God's truth to us, but also how it creates, and also our word of praise uh, given to God. Uh, he went through, through a rather lengthy section called Aramis, which uh, was where he described for us the, the purpose and the beauty of the collects of the Mass, the opening prayer, uh, which set the theme for the liturgy itself, and are often very stark and uh, very much to the point within the Latin rite, if you remember that. Uh, we also talked about the congregation, the nature of the congregation itself, how we are to see ourselves as participants in the liturgy and how we view each other. And then finally, what we've been doing over these past months have been, as we're making this transition into the second part of the book, he's been looking at hindrances to our full participation in the liturgy. And if you remember, we looked at uh, the first, which was habit, that we often will approach the, the Mass as a force of habit, that we've been raised in the faith. This is something that we do every Sunday. Uh, we sort of follow family tradition, follow the herd, as it were, uh, but not really uh, preparing ourselves uh, uh, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally for what we're about to uh, uh, celebrate and what we are about to receive, certainly. Uh, he then spoke about sentimentality, uh, that often we can approach the Mass in terms of the emotional effect that it has upon us, of altering our emotional state, looking for something perhaps to fill a void, to help us get through uh, each, each day, uh, which certainly the Eucharist does in terms of the grace that uh, we receive through it, but uh, often we will approach it more uh, with this sense of looking for something that's going to produce a positive emotional experience for us. And so we can project certain expectations upon the liturgy 
that really arise from our own desires and perceptions rather than uh, the nature of the liturgy itself. Tonight, uh, we'll be looking at the, the final uh, hindrance that he examines, which is simply human nature. And uh, it's more interesting than it sounds from the title, but uh, I, I found it actually fascinating you know, because he makes a point, as we'll see here shortly, of emphasizing the fact that though Christ uh, couches the Mass uh, within the Passover, the celebration of pa the Passover meal, uh, he's very stark and sparing in regards to the directions that he gives to his apostles. That he does not go into minute detail, in other words, about how every aspect of the Mass is going to be celebrated. There's something that Christ understands, both in terms of the, the Spirit guiding us into the fullness of the truth and guiding us, the Church, through the centuries in the celebration of the Mass, uh, but that also that every human being comes to the Mass with various dispositions, understanding, uh, their ability to participate in what's going on. And so human nature uh, in and of itself can become an, an obstacle to us uh, if it's not rightly understood. It's not as though we can cast this part of ourselves off, uh, but we also have to understand our own limitations as we approach the Eucharist and why Christ would choose uh, such a stark way of presenting the Mass to us and why he would move away from fo focusing upon minute details, why this might be important for us throughout the course of the century as the Mass is celebrated by people, again, as by people of various dispositions, but cultures, languages, uh, all these things come into play. And uh, it is as if he was anticipating that reality. And uh, so again, uh, we're picking up with this sort of a, a little interlude, I would say, in, in the book itself, as, he, as we prepare to discuss uh, the, the Eucharist, the, the Mass itself in, in greater detail, or its institution, which is what we'll be looking at uh, from here on out. And even there, I think when you'll see in the coming weeks, uh, Guardini doesn't focus upon the Mass as uh, sort of a, the production of human creativity, uh, but rather arising out of something that Christ instituted that uh, often, I think, in our day, we emphasize sort of making the liturgy uh, satisfying, interesting, engaging on some level or another. Uh, and I think that's rooted, and he does as well, in a sort of a faulty understanding uh, in how we, will, how we approach the Mass, but also how it's been given to us, that it comes to us from Christ himself. It's not something that we came up uh, with as a good idea as a means to creating community or intimacy or unity with each other. It's something that's been given to us and is to be celebrated in a particular way. So the first paragraph I'll be offering uh, this evening is, uh, if you're following along in the text that we sent out, it's the italicized print, and it's just a few of my own remarks. Uh, as always, we'll pause after each paragraph, just to open it up for comments and questions. Uh, again, if you have a question, just put up your it's a virtual hand signal to let Emily know that you have a question or a comment, and then she'll give me a tone so that I can break away uh, from my comments.
Gordini concludes this subsection on hindrances to full participation in mass with human nature. There's a stark simplicity with which Christ institutes the Eucharist, entrusting to his disciples the divine dignity of the mystery into human hands. The sacred act is placed within the context of the Passover, but other than that, our Lord simply plants the seed that will give growth over time. He establishes thus something vital in history on understanding all of its vicissitudes, yet does not foster mere mimicry. And Gordini will go into greater detail about this, but uh, I think this is sort of uh, essential that he's, we're being invited to participate in a relationship that uh, brings us into a radical union and communion with God. And we're called to not just imitation, in terms of what he's doing, mimicry, in terms of the specific actions. Uh, but there is a human element and human response uh, to what is taking place in the Mass. And it always must be very personal. It can't simply be our uh, simulating what Christ did in a kind of divorced way from what's going on within our own hearts and what is uh, arising out of our own faith and what we're celebrating. He understands that this greatest of mysteries will be celebrated by human beings. Gordini writes, Holy Mass is celebrated by people, by a priest and servers and the congregation. All are human. One is deeply appreciative of the special nature and form of the liturgy. Another is not. One responds easily to symbols another only to ideas and moral precepts. Even within a single individual, the degrees of readiness and spiritual participation fluctuate. So interesting, you know, that there can be, within, even within the same person, uh, various levels of participation, uh, depending on our spiritual state, our preparation, uh, we might uh, be attuned to all of these things, what is going on symbolically there for us, uh, but also our internal preparation uh, for the event itself, or there can be some part that is lacking and uh, in, in our approach to it. Our Lord entrusts himself to those who each approach him uniquely and at times with dramatically different dispositions, understandings, and shortcomings. All of this challenges the individual as to whether he will be a spectator with expectations that will either be met with pleasure or disappointment, or one who fully participates and understands that his experience of Holy Mass depends also on himself and his faith. Each must act with an established order to the best of his ability, but never allow real or perceived limitations to excuse himself from the sacred act. So there's a lot there that we'll unpack as we go through Guardini's uh, writing specifically. Uh, but I, we already begin to see here, even in the introduction, that I think one of the reasons that Christ institutes the Eucharist in such a stark and sparingly way, sparing way, is that he is dealing with human beings who are going to approach it uh, with varied levels of preparedness and understanding. And the liturgy in that sense has to have this capacity to engage all who are, are present, 
uh, including their limitations and their shortcomings. And uh, part of this is also to thrust back on the individual uh, the sense of our need to prepare ourselves, that we cannot participate in the mass uh, with the sense that we are simply receiving something sacred and our level of attention, our level of prayer, the, our moral state, uh, that somehow all these things are unimportant uh, in regards to uh, what is taking place at the altar. Certainly our emphasis has always been on uh, what God does at the altar, what he accomplishes, and our participation in that reality. Uh, but I think sometimes our tendency is to negate the importance of that participation, uh, not in the sense of sharing in varied ministries during the, the Mass, or reading at Mass, or serving at Mass. I'm talking about the kind of participation that involves our studying the readings beforehand, our fasting, uh, in preparation to receive Holy Communion, uh, the time that we spend in prayer, the, 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 uh, uh, how we prepare ourselves the morning of for the Mass itself, our avoidance of distractions, all of these things that we've talked about in the past, in the first section of the book, come into play in regards to what Gordini will be unpacking for us here tonight. And so already, I, I hope you're getting a sense here that our, our Lord uh, institutes it in a very simple way, uh, certainly trusting that the Spirit will guide and direct His Church, but also to evoke uh, from us uh, a fuller kind of participation and responsibility for our preparedness. And uh, this has been something I think that has been sorely lacking within the life of the Church over the last uh, 60 years, but I would say even uh, much earlier than that, certainly even before the, the Novus Ordo uh, came into being. I think there certainly were times uh, in the extraordinary form where people could be completely disengaged from what is taking place at, at the altar and be just as un uncatechized as anyone else is in our day too. And so their participation might be quite limited. And uh, so I'm grateful to Guardini that he, he does uh, take this approach of showing this is, is something that is a particular hindrance to us, our limitations and our unwillingness at times to struggle with those limitations. And I think it pulls back into our understanding of the Mass and uh, our understanding of the spiritual life in general, asceticism uh, or liturgical asceticism in particular, that for us as Catholic Christians, our mysticism is always sacramental in its greatest measure, that we encounter God uh, in and through the, the sacramental life in a very concrete and direct way, uh, through the Mass, through uh, confession, anointing, through ordination, through marriage. All of these things are, are, are ways where we enter into a radical kind of communion with God and also experience His grace. And so for the Catholic Christian, our understanding of mysticism is always going to be something not so much ecstatic as it is something very concrete and sacramental uh, through what the Lord has given to us uh, within the church and uh, within our spirituality. And I think our entering into this more fully requires 
the development of the ascetical life, the life of prayer, fasting, spiritual reading, uh, all, all the things that uh, go along with seeking purity of heart and that will allow us to enter into this mystery more and more fully and, to, and allow the grace that we receive to transform us uh, in, in greater depth as well. Okay, I know that's a lot to throw at you, but uh, hopefully Guardini uh, will spell it out with uh, greater clarity as we go along here. Any questions or comments though before we move ahead? Well, we move on to the text itself. Gordini begins by writing, How exactly did the Lord institute the mystery of the Eucharist? Considering what was happening, who was placing the essence of his being and work into an act which henceforth constantly renewed was to form the center of religious existence, one would suppose that he would minutely determine everything the structure of the whole, as well as the details of words and action, that he protected this holy of holies from the disturbing and distorting effects of history by placing it in a spiritual preserve guarded by strict laws. And I think there's part of us that would probably uh, have that resonate with us uh, in the sense that knowing what it is that we receive, that our and that we're re receiving the body and blood of our Lord, that we're being nourished upon Christ himself, that our celebration of this, that the liturgy that arises around it would be guarded and protected, uh, that it would be set out uh, with much, uh, a much clearer instruction. And yet, even in the Gospel of John, we don't see the Lord doing that. We see him uh, being very specific that unless we eat his body and drink his blood, we have no life within us. That unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you, have, you do not have my life within you. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. So he is very specific there in terms of who and what it is that we are receiving. Uh, but even when a large group of his disciples walk away at that point, and even when those who remain faithful are struggling to understand, St. Peter included, uh, he does not go into greater detail. He acknowledges the fact that something of the mystery is only understood by our participation in the mystery. We've heard St. Isaac the Syrian in our group on Wednesday night uh, often say this, that knowledge of the cross comes through the cross through our experience of it, that we understand something of what Christ bore on our behalf, but also something of the depth of that love and of giving oneself in love by our embracing the cross in our own life. And similarly, uh, we come to understand the Eucharist through our participation in it fully and in and through the eyes of faith, the deepening our faith. Certainly there are intellectual aspects to our understanding of the Eucharist, and that we have to parse out for ourselves, but it's comprehended in its fullness in and through the gift of faith and through the eyes of faith. We see the, the, the truth of it when we gaze upon the Holy Eucharist with the eyes of faith and when that faith has been deepened uh, through our prayer life over the course of time. And, uh, and I think Guardini is acknowledging, acknowledging this, that already here in the beginning. Why did Christ not 
set down things minutely? Why didn't he control this event uh, t more tightly than what he has? And the answer to that question is that because it's an act of faith for us to enter into the experience of the Eucharist. We're engaging Christ directly through that faith and through love. It's not a controlled activity any more than our relating to those that we love in this world is to be controlled, manipulated, or our love is to be something that's calculated and controlled. And Christ understanding that more fully than anyone, you know, sets up the Eucharist and our celebration of it with this sense in mind that the apostles understanding of the gift of the Eucharist is going to come through uh, that growing intimacy that they have with, with him. They're living out of the Christian life in all of its fullness and the deepening of their faith over time. And what was true for them is, is true for all of us as well. Okay. Let's see, where did I leave off here? Preserved, guarded by strict laws. The more so since the Old Testament tradition from which he came had developed an elaborate cult life. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Cult life so that on the one hand, he would find such specification only natural. On the other, he would consider it necessary in order to keep the line between the old and the new clear and definite. So Guardini asked the question, you know, Christ rises out uh, of the Jew Jewish community, its experience of the celebration of the Passover, uh, their worship had strict guidelines to be followed. And so why, if he, he even connects it with the celebration of the Passover, why does not Christ uh, uh, emulate that in some sense? Why does he not add specific details? And even in order to clearly separate it from the Passover, in order to emphasize the difference of what is taking place there, uh, what is being made manifest, why, why isn't he more specific about that? So in both ways, why isn't he imitating what he experienced in Judaism? And why, doesn't he, why isn't he being more specific so as to separate what he's doing from the, the Passover itself and how it fulfills what the Passover uh, only points to? And so good questions. And uh, I've always loved how Guardini sets us up for a deeper understanding of what he's leading us into with these, these simple little questions that might seem so obvious to us, but I think opens up uh, for us things that perhaps we've never considered before. Yet actually it was quite different. The gospel reports show that Christ was completely filled with the significance of the moment. It is unthinkable that he could have been careless of anything. He does precisely what he set out to do. But what is that? In connection with the Passover feast, he takes bread, pronounces over it the words we know, and offers it to his followers to eat. He does the same with the chalice. He says, as often as you shall do these things, you shall do them in remembrance of me. I'm sorry, I lost my place again. There I am. It's plain whom he means, the apostles and their successors. What they must do is also evident. These things, 
that he himself has just done, without warping or spiritualizing them. That is all. Nothing more is said. No instructions on how the act is to be worked out in detail, its position in a greater whole or frame, when and where it is to be performed, and all the other questions which naturally arise. Thus the terse command of infinite possibilities and divine dignity is laid with startling simplicity into human hands. So the, the most that we see, I think, um, maybe in terms of specifics, it have, has more to do with interior life. And it's when we look to the Gospel of John, uh, where in place of the words of institution, we have the, the foot washing, uh, where Christ makes himself servant of the others. If you remember, they're walking along the way and he had been telling them repeatedly that they were going to Jerusalem where he would there be arrested and put to death. And they're arguing along the way about who will be greatest in the kingdom. And, uh, and also uh, John or uh, the sons of Zebedee have their mother ask Jesus for each of them to sit one of Jesus left and one at his right. And so they all enter into the room where they're going to celebrate the Holy Eucharist, hot faced and angry with each other. And back in Jesus' time, they would, it would typically be the servant or the slave of the house who would wash the dust of the feet off of guests uh, when they would arrive. And obviously, Jesus and the apostles did not walk around with their own house slave to do that. They performed this task of hospitality for each other. And so, but on this night, when they walk into the room, the bowl and the uh, pitcher, the basin and the pitcher are sitting there, and they all walk in, following in silence, angry with each other over the, uh, the private reach of James and John, and the other apostles being outmaneuvered by the two of them and their mother uh, for these positions of power and honor. And here, Christ is on his way to death. And he's about to celebrate the Eucharist with them. And here they're fighting about who's going to be the greatest. And they're not, they say, you could wash, probably in their own minds, uh, you know, I'm not going to wash anybody's feet tonight. I'm going to sit here and uh, wait and let somebody else do it tonight. And so it's then that Christ girds himself with the towel and begins to wash their feet. So that's the closest that we get. And it has more to do with interior disposition and the greater meaning of the Eucharist in terms of selfless love and making oneself the servant and the slave of others, being obedient even unto death. But in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we find in the institution is what Guardini says here, something very uh, simple and straightforward. Do this in memory of me, these particular things, but without further instruction. And all of this, and Guardini says it almost with this kind of amaze, amazement, with his startling simplicity, he lays it all in human hands. And, you know, in some ways, that's still true today. When we think when we come up to receive the Holy Eucharist, whether one receives the Eucharist on the tongue or in the hands, it's still our Lord placing himself uh, in our hands. You know, it's making himself so absolutely vulnerable to us in love. And one has to imagine it is to be so completely 
unthreatening, non-threatening, that we might be able to all, all the more see the depth of his love and compassion for us, that he makes himself so small in that moment. And I think that would also, we could also draw this in, I think, to our understanding of why uh, the instructions are so simple as well, that he does not want that to be lost upon it, uh, upon us. Uh, the, the simplicity, the starkness, if you will, of the cross, uh, the depth of that love being poured out for us, the vulnerability of that love. And if he were to institute the, the Eucharist in this heavy-handed way with all these minute details and, and strict restrictions on how it was to be celebrated, in some ways it would be uh, in contradiction to how he had become, what he had become for us from the incarnation on. He became an infant. The word of God becomes infons, one without speech. Uh, he is vulnerable throughout childhood, educated by his parents, and then you know eventually falls into the hands of men, is persecuted and pinned to the cross until dead. And all of this out of love for us and in, uh, with mercy towards us. And so the way that he institutes the Eucharist I think is reflective of this reality. And I think we want to keep that in mind in regards not only to our participation in the Eucharist, but how it is celebrated as well. Uh, you know, if we become overly officious or if it's celebrated in, a, in such a way uh, where it might have the appearance of dignity, but lack in be lacking in intimacy and uh, become something that keeps us from entering into it fully, then I think there's something problematic. And I, I think the church saw that. Say what you want about the Novus Ordo and the abuses in the last couple of generations. Uh, I think the church was already seeing this, a kind of distancing in terms of people entering into that mystery fully and understanding what was going on and even how people were praying during the Mass itself. Uh, in some ways could, uh, not that the praying was problematic, but some, in some ways could be disengaged from the encounter with Christ that was to be take, what is, was taking place within the Mass itself. And being fully engaged in those prayers and, and in the responses is something that is is very important and uniquely important for us as members of the body of Christ. And to disengage, I think, is also to disengage from our responsibility in our preparedness for that. To think that we could be simply passive participants then also makes our preparation uh, to enter into the sacrament passive or has the danger of doing that. Uh, it's not like things have gotten better. In fact, I think they've gotten worse. But mostly, I think, because we haven't listened to someone like Guardini and haven't done everything that he's been telling us to do over all these past years. Uh, but uh, I'm babbling on a little bit here now, but I, I think it's important to pause and to want, allow ourselves to wonder a little bit about what Guardini is saying and why he's saying it, why he chose to approach it in this way. And I think it's uh, for these reasons. 
goes on in the next paragraph to say, Jesus drew upon the situation of the Passover for the sacred act and commanded that in the future it continue to be celebrated in this new form. In brief, he arranged no proceedings. He planted a seed which promptly took root in the young congregation and unfolded there. The church has always known that what took place on Monday, Thursday was to be renewed in the celebration of the Eucharist, not in the form of mimicry, but as a vital realization. So again here, not a for, as a form of mimicry. We're just not uh, simulating what Christ did on Holy Thursday, but it's a vital realization. We're entering in to the most profound mystery and that there's a very personal element to that. Uh, we might not say a word other than the responses uh, to the prayers of the Mass, but in the sense of it being a vital realization, I think what Guardini is telling us that it has to involve the whole self and what is taking place and the grace that is being offered is to permeate every aspect of who we are as human beings to such an extent that we begin living from Eucharist to Eucharist that that liturgical asceticism that I mentioned at the beginning of the group, you know, how we live our lives, how we prepare ourselves to receive the grace of the Holy Eucharist in order that it might bear the greatest fruit possible within us, uh, leads us uh, then to focus upon it in the way that Guardini is saying here, that we want it to be something vital, living, something real. And so something that we carry with us at every moment of every day that is reflected in our words, the way that we engage our loved ones, husband, wife, children, how we engage those we work with, live with, do ministry with. You know, all of, all of this should be expressive of the love that we receive within the Holy Eucharist, that is self-emptying, that is willing to bear all, that is willing uh, to be patient to the point of deep suffering. And uh, so there can, you know, we don't engage in the celebration of the Eucharist in a self-centered or self-interested fashion. And I think this takes us back to his other chapters on, that were about hindrances, habit and sentimentality. Habit, we're just satisfying some sense of following along with what our family did or what we think is important to have as a part of our life or sentimentality. We're trying to alter our emotional state or create an affective state by what we're doing. But none of that is speaking about what Guardini is talking about here, a vital re realization of the mystery that we're, we're celebrating. This involves a full participation of the self, not just in the celebration of the mass, but at every other moment of our life. And so his simplicity in establishing the, uh, uh, the Eucharist forces us back to look at, at our lives and to see them in the context of his life, the gospel, and the cross. And uh, most people wouldn't see it that way. I think uh, because, again, we're always looking at it, uh, the changes that we've seen, the developments in the liturgy as uh, a breakdown. And in many ways, there ha has been, there's no doubt about it. But uh, I think in discussions about liturgy, there often is this deep frustration that exists, that there's been a loss of reverence, and uh, there has been no gain uh, 
to the church that people uh, can see, at least from one perspective. And, uh, you know, it's often said that the, you know, the extraordinary form that, you know, this was the saint maker, whereas the novice ordo is something that actually has diminished uh, uh, our Christian life. And in some sense, even I've heard people say that, you know, less grace is received in celebrating the ordinary form of the Mass, the Novus Ordo. And, uh, but I think when you read it through the lens that Guardini provides, provides you, it begins to take on, the, the, at least the changes begin to take on a whole other meaning, not in terms of how they were applied, but why, the reasoning behind them. And Guardini, in, in many ways, is considered one of the most influential Catholic thinkers of the 20th century. And really, especially in regards to uh, liturgy and le leading up to the Second Vatican Council, I think very much uh, like uh, St. John Henry Newman, he would be seen as one, like one of the absent fathers of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, I don't know if he had any uh, participation uh, in the council or not, or not. I know he was offered uh, the cardinalate at one point, but re refused it. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, we can see the influence that he had. I don't think he ever imagined that things would develop in the way that they have, uh, but we can certainly see uh, what the church was looking towards in, in some of the changes. The seed has always been directly affected by its soil and by all the forces, motives, circumstances that affected its growth. Again, by the size of the congregation, by its urban or rural location, by the kind of people in it and the historical and cultural situation in which they found themselves. So this gets back to what we've already been talking about, that the soil in which the seed is planted has always had an effect upon how the liturgy has been celebrated. The various cultures, the languages, what the church was going through at a particular time. Uh, think about how the Eucharist was celebrated during times of persecution or even how it's celebrated in places of, or in countries now that are being persecuted. The underground Chinese church, I'm sure, you know, has a different experience of the celebration of the Eucharist than the typical American that is in and out and 45 minutes. And, uh, and so, you know, Guardini says, you know, we have to acknowledge that, that the, the, the soil is something that has a tremendous impact, uh, even beyond sort of like the liturgical norms. Again, it's what's going on within the human heart that is important. Any questions or comments so far? You've been a rather quiet group tonight. I see one group prepared by drinking some wine. So, uh, <laughs> okay. All right, we'll move on. Thus the cornerstone of the sacred act was laid in history and what a long and diversified history. There could not fail to appear along with it its vital indestructible aspects others bound to prove transitory, some to become extinct. The whole structure had to settle sometime in the process, shifting certain concepts out, off, out of line, 
sometimes less valuable additions managed to creep into language or ritual. And there were other dangers, quite aside from the hazards of the dead language employed. So again, the vicissitudes of history, uh, that as the, the celebration of the Eucharist developed, it was quite diversified. Certain things came and went, depending on the time, the culture, as, as seeming significant or insignificant. Certainly, there has always been the fundamental structure. But uh, during certain times, various things would be uh, emphasized that were either important or not so important. And then, as you said, some things go extinct. I know a lot of people would probably take umbrage with his, his reference there to the dead language, uh, referring uh, to Latin there, but, uh, and, and disagree with him on that. And I don't know if we, for our purposes if we need to go into it into great detail, but I understand what he's getting at there, that the further that we've gotten away from our understanding of Latin, and our celebrating of the Mass in Latin, the more difficult it is for us even to go back there. And uh, even here at the Oratory, we certainly uh, maintain the use of Latin within the liturgy, and the Church has called us to do that uh, uh, as a unique and distinct element of the Latin Rite liturgy and to maintain it. Uh, but I think we also have, we know the challenges of that too, that people can disengage and I've seen it, you know, at some masses that people are fully engaged because they know the prayers, even when they are being sung in Latin. Uh, but others, I see the eyes glass over and the participation cease at that moment. And so, uh, again, while we might not go into detail about it here now, uh, there are issues there that would have to be addressed one way or another. But I did, did hear a tone. And Emily, you want to tell me who had a question or thought? Uh, it was Andrea. Andrea? Okay. Where are you? Um, I, it was actually me, Father. Okay. <laughs> yes, I, uh, I did have a, a bit of a comment. You know, I think mm -hmm. you already went past the, that step, but uh, I was a little troubled when you said, you know, about uh, that some, there's uh, some belief that we receive less grace in the new right because we receive Christ who is and was and is, you know, you, you, you cannot receive more, you cannot receive less. So it's impossible for us to receive less, uh, a less grace because we're receiving Christ. And right. Christ is the same that he was before. Right. So. Right. And, but I, I think people, have, some people have found that the changes in the liturgy so troubling and so disturbing I think that's often the thought that comes to mind and is often articulated. I'm certainly not saying that, but uh, I've even heard it said about uh, ordinations as well. You know, the new right ordinations is you know not having validity. I mean, things the the tensions that exist within the life of the church and the different understandings. You know, certainly uh, that exists at, at present uh, hardly suggest a unity in terms of our understanding and our participation in the Mass. And um, and, so, and I don't even think, uh, capture half of what Guardini puts forward to us in this little reflection, to be honest with you. Uh, there's something that's uh, 
so engaging to me about his writings, you know, because the emphasis is not on the theoretical, it's on the act. It's what's taking place in the mass. And, and more importantly, what God is doing, God acting, not just our acting, but God acting. And th this is what Guardini is focused on in, in a very powerful way. And I think often in our contemporary dialogue, if you want to call it that, uh, we, we will get out to the more and more theoretical and we'll lose ourselves in, you know, bringing up, you know, various things from history, how the liturgy was celebrated at different times, you know, disputes and debates about language, everything, and we'll lose sight. Often those discussions you'll see will break down and they'll lose sight upon the, the fact that God is acting within the liturgy itself. And because there is such a disturbance uh, about how the liturgy is celebrated in you know, many parishes today, the banality of it and the music and things that can often detract from it, uh, I think it may, can make people lose sight of what Gordini is saying here. And that God is acting in this very powerful way and is fully present to us in the Holy Eucharist. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm certainly sympathetic uh, with what people have experienced over the last couple of generations and how disruptive that has been within the life of the church and the failure to catechize. And one wonders, you know, why, why is it that we're hearing something like this that was written back in the 1940s that has this kind of clarity and beauty to it uh, why, why are we hearing that? Maybe even for the first time. You know, I never heard anybody articulate it, and I never even heard contemporary apologists uh, articulate it uh, in this way or with this kind of clarity. And uh, it has. It, sem it seems to have this ability to cut through some of the things that pull us off of the path to the deeper understanding that Guardini, I think, was trying to lead us toward. But I agree with you, certainly. The disturbing thought of that. Ren, I think, is the next one. Hi. Um, yes, I, I just wanted to say, going way back mm -hmm. um, in the in the thing, I just I, I was reading through some of it um, just now, and I, I just wanted to comment that I'm just really struck at the bottom of the first paragraph when he's talking about um, sort of the concrete nature of the Eucharist mm -hmm. and. Uh, he like uses that word um, without warping or spiritualizing them, right. and it's just like a really powerful turn of phrase because I think you think of something like the mass, and it's like, well, of course it's spiritual; it's all spiritual. And it's like, right. no, it, it's not because we're not standing in prayer saying like we're you know we're uniting ourselves to a sacrifice taking place in heaven that we can't see. Like we're 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 not doing that like it's not invisible and it's um it's not angelic and it's not spiritual it's it's actually completely concrete and physical and actually present and that's actually a really beautiful thing about adoration is that you confirm that and then continue that that you say like no this isn't a spiritual reality that we like unite ourselves to it's completely concrete and real and that concrete nature of the lord's presence is continued 
even in adoration, um, which is what really makes, you know, going to adoration such a gift because obviously the Lord's there in the tabernacle, but when he's there in the tabernacle, you have to sort of imagine him being there. Like, you, you know, he's there, but you, he, you know, he's not right in front of you. But then you go to adoration, you really don't have to try to do anything at all because coming into the Lord's presence has already taken place because he's, he's just there. And so are you. So great. Um, and there's no like spiritualizing at all. And I, I just thought that was really powerful. And then how he ended that paragraph with, he lays it, he gives it to us with startling simplicity and, and just lays it in our hands. And that is sort of like almost to the point where you wonder like, why did he, say a little bit corner like why didn't you just grab a tablet write out a yeah. few things for us like why if, did if i was there us? i would have asked some questions yeah <laughs> like why did you trust us with developing the entire right. freaking liturgy of the church yeah. like, i know you said the holy spirit and that's yeah. great but like we're a disaster <laughs> like yeah. why did you do that R ren would yeah. have had her little <laughs> journal out you know, with the, yeah. these questions. I've been thinking Why about do this. Well, I think I think uh, we could like err on we I think we could err on either end, you know, a kind of banalizing of the liturgy, you know, of losing sight of the transcendent and losing sight of the mystery that we are being drawn into that is greater than ourselves. And so we can swing to that end, which I think many people have feel that we really have done in a radical way, uh, to lose sight of the real presence of Christ. Or as you said, the spiritualizing, where it becomes so angelic and untouchable and unapproachable that we lose sight of the incarnational aspect of it, that God took our flesh upon himself to reveal himself to us in this very concrete, tangible way. And that did not cease at the ascension. He remains to be present, concrete and tangibly with us in and through his body and in and through the sacramental life of the church. And to the point that we can say that our experience of Christ and that intimacy with him is far greater even than what the apostles experienced. I mean, Thomas, places his hand in, in Christ's open side, but we receive, at least, well, eventually they did in the Eucharist, but we receive the, the, the Lord in the Holy Eucharist, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. You know, what is more concrete, intimate than, than, that, than that reality? Or that we hear the words, you know, of absolution. Again, it's not left something abstract and notional, it's not spiritualized where we think or imagine ourselves to be forgiven, but the church wants us audibly to articulate our sin, but also audibly to hear the words of absolution uh, as coming from Christ himself. And that this is an encounter that we have with God. And so his point is well taken here. You know, it would be very easy, and I think at very various points in history that became the case, that it's so spiritualized that it becomes unapproachable. And therefore, people cannot understand it. And that, that stereotype of like, and you know, this isn't a criticism of those people, but, and you can still see it today, the stereotype of like the you know, the people at mass who are really just, they're, they're there praying their rosary. Mm -hmm. 
because they they don't understand what's being said, what's being prayed, or they can't relate to it, or it, it's just been over spiritualized, as you said, like overly angelic. And you know, there's still people to this day who like if I go to certain places, that's what they're doing, and they have the rosary out the whole time, and it's like the rosary is beautiful, but you're at the mass, and but which like, isn't calling being, they're not able to participate or they're not being drawn in right which isn't to call in the question of the person's holiness but i've known certainly as a priest over time individuals who will go from church to church and they know when communion is going to be distributed and so they'll leave mass to go to mass in order to receive communion at another church and so there's something fundamentally that they're not understanding there in terms of who they are engaging at the mass and who they are receiving and that it becomes more important at that point, you know, that the grace becomes quantified in their mind that I, I need to get to another church to receive as many times as I can. Uh, and this would, you know, that would be a kind of spiritualization to the point of radical distortion. I remember reading a biography of St. Thomas More that began with that and it said like imagine a world so saturated by this kind of religiosity and spiritualization that uh they said that the church bells the big ones mm -hmm. would be rung at the same time as the bells of consecration mm -hmm. for that very reason and that people would hear the bells of consecration right. and know to get up from the church that they were in where they had just received communion, and they like in crowds they would go running through the streets to the next church to receive right. communion again and it was like right yeah i right. really struck me yeah. So that's, you know, again, I think his language and his way of putting things pulls us back even to be to considering the mass, uh, again, through the lens that we need to be viewing it, you know, moving away from the extreme margins to getting back to Christ institution of the Eucharist itself, to rethink things from the beginning. And really, I think that was the call of the council resource month, you know, to go back to the sources and here to Christ himself and into the very way that he institutes the Holy Eucharist and what that tells us. And often we, we don't do that. And part of, you know, part of that is because we're not shown to do it. Another part is because we're lazy. Uh, we're, it's about eight o'clock. Did anybody have another question or should I move on air? Go ahead. And yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. Okay. Um, I, I find it uh, interesting how, while he was addressing very clearly the, the Roman liturgy, that it does right. have applicability to the East, because, okay, so in the East there is no liturgical movement, there's no uh, Second Vatican Council, there's no complete rewriting of, of the, the right, um, and yet they're still suffering from the same kinds of like, hemorrhaging out the faithful and what have you, mm -hmm. you know, and while I'm certainly fairly traditional and would, you know, have sympathies to the, the traditional Latin mass, um, you know, what some people, some people will say that if only we hadn't done this, if only we hadn't changed that, the world would be just so much full, more full of faithful Catholics, what have you. And 
but I can look to the East, look at all the Eastern Orthodox, and look at the Byzantine Catholics and say, well, their liturgy hasn't changed in a really long time, and they're still hemorrhaging people. So really, when you get down to it, it comes down to us. You know, that's really what it seems that uh, uh, Gordini is saying, is that, you know, we, we're we our own worst enemy, and, you know, instead of trying to externalize um, uh failings, we should look to ourselves and how are we participating in the liturgy? How are we accepting it? And I think we could even go a step further than that, that it really comes down to Christ. And in the next part of the book, uh, he makes this point right at the beginning that it's not about our, our creativeness as human beings in one direction or another, or of preserving something you know, in terms of following it in the, the closest possible way. Uh, because both can distort things. You know, we're sort of taking it into our own hands, either to protect it and guard it, or we're focusing on our own creativity to make something that sort of fits the age, rather than focusing upon Christ as the one who institutes it. Christ is the focus of all that we're, all that we are doing. And our and that reality then shapes again the asceticism uh, through which we prepare to enter into this mystery. But it also shapes how we celebrate it ultimately too. I think that's what we can have faith in that if our focus is on Christ and our focus is upon living that life as fully as possible, of conforming ourselves, of putting on the mind of Christ, of dying to self and sin, of ordering our desires toward God, of overcoming the passions, then the way that we celebrate liturgy is going to be the is going to be done with the mind of Christ in accord with the mind of Christ. I think the more that we diverge where we set aside the ascetical life, we can be, you know, we can focus on doing it in a very prim and proper exact way or in the loosest possible way, but both can be radical distortions and sorely lacking and not, not involve the human heart. Let's go through just the, the final section of this, and then we'll open it up for any questions that you might have about the whole, whole text. Another thing, Holy Mass is celebrated by people, by, wait, where, does anybody know where I left off? I'm sorry. Is it that paragraph? Somebody has to unmute yourself. I can't hear you. <laughs> I think Ren is saying yes. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yes. I forgot to <laughs> Another thing, Holy Mass is celebrated by people, by priests and servers in the congregation, all are human. One is deeply appreciative of the special nature and the form of the liturgy, another is not. One responds easily to symbols, another only to ideas and moral precepts. Even within a single individual, the degrees of readiness and spiritual participation fluctuate. There are alert and joyous periods, but also periods of indifference and despondency, carelessness and dullness. God's sacred act is planted in human imperfection. Celebrated by a priest for whom the liturgy is really alive, its words and gestures are convincing by one who is not immersed in the spirit of the liturgy, they are apt to appear forced and unnatural. Then there are all the private little shortcomings of speech and bearing and movement, which can be so distracting. 
The same is true of the congregation. It too can be can be understanding and indifferent, uh, can actively participate or merely allow events to take their course. It can be educated to celebrate the Mass and really understand, but it also can passively watch the ceremony unwind an accepted tradition day after day, Sunday after Sunday. It can enter into the sacred action or remain outside, carrying on its private devotion with all the varying shades of mood that ever variable human life contains. So, planted in human imperfection uh, seems to be the key phrase for me in this paragraph. Planted in human imperfections. And that presents to us then the need to have this realization that there are going to things that going to be things that uh, pull us away from what is at the heart of the liturgy, that pull us away from Christ, uh, that make us scattered, our own despondency, dejection, lack of attention, lack of education, our overfocus on certain things, whatever it might be. Uh, can be something that pulls us away from what is at the very heart of the Mass itself. And, and yet Christ entrusts, again, you know, this reality, the striking reality to us, and with full knowledge of, this, of these imperfections that we have as human beings. Uh, it's an extraordinary act of, of vulnerability. And, uh, you know, when one is vulnerable, uh, there's always a capacity to be wounded, to be rejected. And I think all of us know that from human experience, uh, you know, where we've been vulnerable to others, where love has been unrequited or where it's been abused in some form or fa fashion. Uh, but that's certainly true in that relationship with Christ, multiplied more than we can imagine and, uh, and it can be particularly disturbing and uh, uh, disgusting when it takes place in regards to the Holy, Holy Eucharist, when the Eucharist is abused or uh, when those who are responsible for celebrating it become abusers. And uh, there was a case in Louisiana just within the last week, you know, of desecration by a priest himself uh, of, the, of the altar. And... Uh, and so when we think about this, you know, that it's implanted in human imperfection, you know, it, that includes our sinfulness and, the, and our capacity to abuse what is most precious and, uh, and, and not cherish it. It speaks to us, I think, of something of, of the depth of Christ's love for us. For the individual believer, this can present serious difficulties. When he goes to Holy Mass, he finds it as it is with all of its inadequacies. Everything depends on whether he remains a spectator who expects to be offered something decent and is accordingly pleased or disappointed, or whether he understands that it is a question of service performed together, hence depending not only on the priest and the rest of the congregation, but also on himself. And so, you know, one has to let go in a sense of expectations. And that's a hard thing for us to do, to alter our ex expectations. 
even as we are thinking about the distortions in the liturgy that have taken place, especially over these last generations, our, our focus typically hones in on the problems that we see and that need to be fixed. But those problems are typically outside of ourselves. Whereas what Ginny is saying here is that uh, that the question of service before this question of perform, perform to, I'm sorry performed together and depending not only on the priest and the rest of the congregation but on himself that again we, we come back to the whole question of asceticism of preparing ourselves, of giving ourselves over to the reality of the life that Christ has made possible for us. And again, of living from Eucharist to Eucharist, having that shape our asceticism, having that shape the way that we, we live our life, that we know that we're going to be entering into this, this most radical communion with God. And so that should shape every thought that we have, how we engage every person that we encounter, every act that we perform throughout a, a, given, a given day. It's sort of a frightening thought to think about, but if if we are conscious for even one day of that, you know, of where our thoughts go and what we do and our little attitudes that we show towards each other, then we'd probably be shocked and question whether or not we really prepared ourselves to to celebrate the Mass. Everyone is responsible for the celebration of the Mass, each according to his qualifications. As far as he is able to act within the established order, the individual should do everything in his power to, to perfect a practice or remove a, an abuse. Beyond that, he must accept the Mass he attends as it happens to be. He must not be unduly upset by its limitations. Certainly, he must not use them as an excuse to withhold his share of participation. He should remind himself that the essential remains untouched should enter into it and help to accomplish the sacred act. So, you know, we should all, my first thought is that we all should, you know, we bear our, our share of sufferings for the sake of the church. We bear with the inadequacies that we experience in the liturgy uh, for love of the church. And we bear that with love in order that it might be transformed but most of all, we seek personal conversion, knowing ourselves to be part of the body of Christ. You know, as we've said so often in some of our other groups, when there is one prayer within a family, it can elevate the whole family, lift up the whole, whole family. That uh, within the body of, of the church, when there is one priest who celebrates with full devotion and love, and when there's a congregation that is fully engaged, or even a few individuals in that congregation that are fully engaged, not only in the liturgy, but in the Christian life as a whole, then it can elevate the, the experience of the celebration of the Mass for the entire church. And just like unity among Christians is not going to be achieved through our discussion or through theological dialogue, so is our is the renewal of the liturgy not going to take place solely through dis discussion if it's something that's instituted by Christ given to us as gift and that we are to be responsive to that fully by preparing our minds and our hearts and our whole lives in order to enter into it and to receive this gift then that's how we bring about a transformation of the liturgy it always has to be something radically personal 
and that involves personal conversion. And who was it that said, was speaking in this way that, you know, the change takes place, you know, through that line that runs through the human heart, that we always, was it Solzhenitsyn, or was it Solzhenitsyn who said that, that we often will want to direct it to those outside of us, or problems with others, rather than realizing the true change, true conversion takes place through a line that runs through the middle of our, our own hearts. And so our thinking about the church and the liturgy uh, should be shaped in the very same way, you know, through our own need for repentance, for conversion of life, uh, through our own need for asceticism, this kind of liturgical asceticism, which I think Guardini in his writing prepares us for. All the, all the first part of the book, I think really did sort of shape our minds and hearts to understand more fully how we are to be living our life, especially living our life as it revolves around the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. And now he's going to take us more uh, deeply into the institution of the Eucharist by Christ himself and its meaning. Uh, but, you know, again, you know, I think this is the thing that impresses me about Guardini, uh, his capacity to do this in this very simple and accessible way of, you know, the ne next thing, it feels like a bucket of cold water has been thrown over you, over you when you realize what he said, because it doesn't allow you to walk away disengaged, you know, as, you know, as, as we often can with those kinds of discussions that take place online, on the internet, or with other people even directly. When we make it purely theoretical and an argument, some, we're always leaving ourselves out of that equation. Maybe not completely, but more often than not, we leave ourselves out of it. Any thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns? Eric. So I, I wonder if um, C.S. Lewis read any Gordini, because there's a section of the screw tape letters that always sticks with me, and I try to reread re re it during Lent. Um, it's, it's brief, so, so please humor me. Um, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see it spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer and rather... Uh, with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors, whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters... Very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots this week, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient <laughs> will quite easily believe that their religion must be therefore somehow ridiculous. And it goes on from there. Wow, but those boot, boots that squeak drive me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> 
perfect. No, I think he's he's right on, and I think you're right in the sense that um, one wonders if one read the other uh, because they seem to be of one mind in this regard. That the the temptation that comes to us is to focus on the other or on the flaws and and inadequacies that really arise out of our imperfection as human beings. It doesn't arise from Christ. You know, what, what rests within the Holy Eucharist is the perfection of love. And uh, the, the way that we help that to be seen is through our own conversion, that others would see the fruit of the Eucharist in our lives and the way that we treat them, talk to them, engage them. And it's true. I think, you know, there's one other saint who said, you know, when we kneel before the altar, you know, people should see within that, uh, you know, who it is that we're kneeling before and our devotion to the Eucharist and what it means for us. And I think that's true, you know, the, in the way that we receive the Holy Eucharist, all of it is expressive of, of what it is that we believe and how we're living, living our lives. So this is, you know, it's been a, a wonderful preparation. I think these, uh, I'm sorry for taking six months for us to get, get back to this, but uh, it's a wonderful preparation, I think, for us to get in then to this second part of the book, uh, where he's going to start with, you know, Christ's own institution uh, of the Holy Eucharist and go into greater detail for us. So I think we've been prepared by Guardini very well uh, over these last couple of years now to go a little deeper. I always favor this way for some reason. I think it's for, for you know, I think whether reading St. Isaac the Syrian or St. Theophan or someone like Cordini, it's taking, you know, moving at this pace is always better, you know, because if you skim this, it's not, it's not going to take root. And you have to have a priest sitting before you sort of saying it over and over again. How many different ways can he say the same thing for goodness sake? <laughs> so, any other final comments? It's great to see you all again. And I've missed, missed this group immensely. And so we'll pick up there next month, same thing, second Saturday of each month until we can meet in person again. We've heard that the universities are lightening up some of the restrictions in regards to numbers. And so hopefully things will continue to move in that tre trend and we'll be able to meet in person again with some of the larger groups. Okay. Robert, could I make a little plug for the upcoming adoration event? Yes. Okay. So on November 1st, the oratory will be returning to perpetual adoration. Mm -hmm. And, um, to kick that off in a special way at nine. So we'll begin, be beginning perpetual adoration again, beginning 10 p.m. on Sunday, November 1st, which is the Feast of All Saints. So to kick that off at 9.30, we will have a rosary and bonfire in the oratory parking lot, and then a candlelight procession into the chapel where we will pray solemn night prayer together. Mm -hmm. And then perpetual adoration will go from there. So if anyone, we may not be able to fit everyone into the chapel because of restrictions, but we'll have all the windows open so that people can hear and see even if they can't come in the chapel, but everyone can participate in the rosary and the bonfire. So great. if you have time, uh, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you.
Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Father David, yes. the next group will be uh, Saturday, November 14th. Saturday, no, November 14th. Uh, and just, I, I would anticipate that even if we do have some people in person, we'll still continue to live stream. Um, right. For those who, who wouldn't be able to attend in person. If we're, if we're yeah, I think so. For the near future, certainly. We'll continue right. to do that with most of our groups. Okay. Well, we close as always with the prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. And the Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to Thanks God. Thanks be to God. So unmute yourselves. Goodbye. Bye. Have a great night. Thanks, everybody, for coming. It's great to see you all.